God is in you for us. Our church. Thank you for your church. Thank you that all around the world, in the last 24 hours and the next few hours, your people will be gathered together, praying and singing, listening, fellowshipping, worshiping. Some will do so in secret. Some will do so with guards at the doors. Many will meet in houses and huts. Others like us will meet in buildings that have been graciously provided and built for this purpose. But no matter where we are stretched out around the world, we are your people, your church. And you are building that church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church. And yet that does not stop the devil from trying. And we can see demonstrated from these churches in the letters that our Lord Jesus sent to them that the devil is always trying to infiltrate and disrupt and interfere. Father, the last thing in the world any believer should want is to be a tool of the devil inside the church. And so I pray as we go through and look at these churches that you would equip us that we might know how to build our church, your church. I pray, Father, that our hearts would be tender and open to the work of your spirit and that your word would challenge us, convict us, and change us for the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for seated. The book of Revelation is the capstone of God's inspired word in that it is the salvation and the consummation of the work of God during this time in his plan of redemption for all mankind. I believe the best way to interpret this book is to take the language as literally as we can. In other words, when it talks about these creatures, I believe these are literal creatures. When it talks about these churches, I believe these are literal churches. As a matter of fact, if you were to look on a map in the back of your Bible, and if you started in western Turkey, kind of down on the southwestern side, you would find the city at that time, it was called Ephesus. 
And if you make kind of a horseshoe trip, moving north and then going back down uh, southeast, you, you would be able to follow the track of where these churches were located in, in the past. If you had lived in that area, you could have gone to one of these seven churches. The book of Revelation is about the work of Jesus Christ in all ages, and especially in the age to come. Chapter 1 and verse number 19 gives us kind of an outline or an overview of the book itself. Verse 19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen, the things which are. And that's where we pick up in chapters 2 and 3. The things which shall be, uh, the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And when we get into chapter 4, that's everything else hereafter. And that hasn't happened yet. And we're still praying and looking for the fulfillment of what is described in chapter 4 through the end of the book. These churches do not, in my opinion, represent ages of the church. And primarily the reason that I say that is if we believe in an imminent return of our Lord Jesus, in other words, he could come at any time. We do believe that, right? He could come at any time. If we do believe in an imminent return of Christ, then these churches can't represent ages because he couldn't have come at any point until the last of these church ages, so to speak. So, I tend to believe that these churches, though, represent the kinds of churches that exist in all time. And so the warnings that he gives to five of these churches are warnings we should heed, warnings we should listen to, to make sure that we are in danger of killing our church. So really what I want to do is I want us to ask this question. What should I, and, 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 and you personalize this, all right? And I want us all to do this. What should I do to keep my church alive? Because what we see our Lord saying to five of these churches is if you don't change, I'm going to shut you down. Now, you say that sounds counter to what he says in that he is always building his church. Folks, you've got to understand something. 
Sometimes God has to purify his church in order to build it. And the purification process may mean that there are individual groups that are meeting together that no longer should be called church and really have no reason to continue to meet. That's apparently what's happening in some of these churches we read about here in these two chapters. They had moved beyond what God had intended when they began. Now, I want to clarify something. I'm not saying that's where we are. I'm not saying that Maranatha is on the verge of collapse. But I am saying this. We better heed the warning because we never want to get to the place where we as a church, as a group of a body, as, as a group of people meeting together in a called out assembly like this, we never want to get to the place where we're useless to Jesus anymore. So what can you do to keep your church alive? And let me, let me just make one quick little rabbit trail, all right? I promise it's going to be quick. And why are you laughing? <laughs> Take ownership of your church. It's yours. God put you here on purpose. Be committed. Become, be, be a member. Join in. Get involved. Take ownership and responsibility for your ministry in your church. And you all have one. All right. Told you to be quick. Now, We're going to focus today on this first church. And I don't think it's I don't think it's just geography that was the cause of Ephesus being the first to receive a letter from our Lord Jesus. I think what you have here is really kind of a foundational situation. These five churches receive a warning and the warning to the church of Ephesus really, I think, lays a foundation for everything else we're going to read about the other churches. So how can I help keep my church alive? I know this sounds simple, but you've been alive long enough to know that this is not easy. Be loving. 
be loving. This church, the church at Ephesus, really had an amazing beginning. If you want to flip back in your Bible to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. For Diana brought no small gain under the craftsmen, whom he called together with a workman of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that by this craft, in other words, making little idols, we have our wealth. Moreover, you see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but also throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying, that they be no gods which are made with our hands. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater. When Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not, wouldn't let him go in. And certain of the chief of Asia, and certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, said they had desired him, that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not whereof they were come together. That's, that's your typical political rally. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and Jews putting him forward, and Alexander beckoned with a hand, and would have made it his defense of the people. And basically what goes on here is Alexander in his in his so-called eloquence is going to present the case of the idolatrous or idol, idol makers, craftsmen, that Paul and his cohorts are preaching another God, which they were, and that it was hurting their business, which it was. Because you see, when the gospel when the gospel is working, idols fall. When the gospel is working, idols come tumbling down. The goddess Diana for the city of Ephesus, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's still, you can see some of the ruins 
of that temple today. And she was making money. It was an immoral uh, worship. But it was a money-making venture. But when the people were turning to Christ, turning as we see described in the Thessalonians, for the Thessalonians, they were turning to God from idols. The church is born out of this great working of the gospel. People are loving Jesus more than they're loving anyone or anything else. And that's how the church started. But there's a problem now. Go back to Revelation chapter 2. Because we see in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left my first love. So let's think in these terms. If we want to keep our church alive, then we really need to love Jesus. We really need to love Jesus. The word they left in verse number four, thou hast left thy first love. This is an intentional action. This is not something that just casually over time by accident happened. This is an intentional turning. The word means to abandon. It's interesting. It's actually the word that many times is translated forgive. Because when we forgive others, we forsake or abandon the offense. We leave it behind. It's a choice we make to forgive. Here the choice is not forgiveness, but the choice is abandoning Christ. If we are going to keep our church alive, we need to be a people who are deeply in love with Christ. You know Matthew 22. Let me start reading at verse number 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, he skilled in Old Testament law, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the most important commandment? And he's thinking in terms of not taking the Lord's name in vain, not stealing, not killing, obeying parents. That's what he's thinking in terms of. What's the most important commandment of all? Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. In other words, every part of you, everything about us ought to be loving Jesus. This is the first and great commandment. By the way, when Jesus said that, it's the same word 
that John used in Revelation 2, verse 14. You've left your first love. On the, and the second is like unto it, under Matthew 22, 39. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang, hinge, all the Old Testament, all the Lord and Prophets. This is radical. It really is. This is radical to the Pharisees. Because to the Pharisees, the Old Testament was about what they did not who they loved. The Old Testament was about keeping the law rather than loving God. And Jesus said, no, you've missed the point. If all you're concerned about is what you do rather than who you love, you're not keeping the commandments. You're not obeying the Old Testament. Now, what is the word first? This is the first and great commandment. You've left your first love. What are we talking about? Well, two meanings, really. Number one, it's first in order. Would you have first, second, third? Priority. This is kind of what Jesus meant, I think, in Matthew 6, when he said, Seek ye first, same word, the kingdom of God. And all these things should be added up. First in priority. But it also has the idea of first in the sense of its highest in rank. Nothing else above. Now, the problem with that is our flesh battles that. Our flesh wants to be first in priority. Our flesh wants to be loved more than we ought to love Jesus. And really, this is the issue of idolatry. You see, in Ephesus, it wasn't the little statues they were concerned about. It was materialism that they were concerned about. It was money that they were concerned about. In John chapter 14, Jesus, Jesus is pretty clear on this, folks. If you love me, keep my commandments. In John chapter 15, he says this, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now I know here is where we start saying, well, we're not perfect and, and Jesus knows that and He knows we're going to disobey and, and He really can't expect us to obey all the time. And you know what? That's just not true. 
Yes, he knows that we're going to fail. And yes, he knows we're going to disobey. But we have no excuse for willingly doing so. And to willingly disobey is a sign that we just don't love Jesus. And I'm not necessarily talking about what, what, how you know we, we, we rank sin, which I don't think we should, but you know, I'm not, when it comes to murder, yeah, we might be all right. But how about anger? That was Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount. How about anger? How you doing on that? Did you lose your temper with any of your holiday guests? Or is it just getting started? I'm not lost. I mean, really, let's talk about it. Jesus did. You look on a woman, you lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You see, he's not, he's more concerned about what's going on in here than out here. What's going on in your heart? Have you made idols of your kids? Have you made idols of your job? Have you made an idol of your bank account? Do you do more to protect and provide and take care of anyone or anything else rather than the priority of loving Christ? Now remember, the church in Ephesus, I mean, they were doing things. They were busy. They were diligent. They were discerning. But they had abandoned their love for Jesus. And who would that have been, by the way? Well, the church is made up of people so the people were the ones. The people were the ones. From the pastors on down who were busy but barren. So if you want to help keep your church alive, be loving to Jesus but also be loving to each other. Remember the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just kind of look around. Just go ahead, just look around. Every person you see is your neighbor. Okay. Hi, neighbor. We can all be Mr. Rogers for a little while. Are you being loving to the neighbors in your church community? show you a couple of verses. I think I have these up here. Yeah. John chapter 13 
listen very carefully, a new commandment. Now that's an interesting phrase. This is Jesus taking deity, not taking, but exercising deity by saying, what I'm saying right now is as important as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. A new commandment. I'm going to give you a new one. I'm God, so I can do that. A new commandment I give unto you. Thou shalt, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And he says this, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Now, now understand what Jesus just said. If the world is going to know that we follow Christ, the clearest evidence of that will be how we love each other. By the way, this is in John chapter 13. The context of John chapter 13. It's the upper room. Jesus has put on a towel. He's washed dirty feet. And he's explained to these men that he's going to a cross to sacrifice himself. So the context is what? The context is service and sacrifice. Dr. Lesola puts it this way. The one with the dirtiest towel wins. What does that mean? <coughs> that means you take up the towel of service and you wash dirty feet. You serve Humbly serve one another. That takes time. That takes thought. That takes planning. That takes work. And ministry is work. People are hard work. Let me show you another verse. John chapter 17, our, high, our Lord's high priest, priestly prayer. He says, I in them, and thou in me, Jesus talking to God, I'm in them, his followers, God is in me, he says, that they may be made perfect in one. Here's that word some people don't like, unity. And that the world may know. Here's another one of those Evidences, right? That the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them and that as thou hast loved me. So the world, the community around Glenford, Thornville, Somerset, Grace Yard, our little ministry circle here. How are they going to know that we as a group of people love Jesus 
and love them and are following Christ, how will they know that when they see us sacrificing, serving, and unified? You ever heard the name Francis Schaeffer? Francis Schaeffer is a theologian. He's in heaven now. Years ago, from years past, he was an apologist. In other words, he he was one of those guys that helped us to not only understand what we believe, but be able to explain it to others. He proposed two powerful things we can do to display observable love for one another in response to the to the verses that I just read you, John 13, 34, 35, and 34, 35, and John 17, 23. Two things. One, he says this, when I have failed to love my Christian brother, I go to him and say, I'm sorry. Now that may seem, and he says this, that may seem like a letdown. The first thing we speak of should be so simple. But if you think it's easy, You've never done it. Two, there must also be forgiveness. And though it's hard to say, I'm sorry, it's even harder to forgive. The Bible, however, makes plain that the world must observe a forgiving spirit in the midst of God's people. So, do others see that forgiving spirit among Maranatha? He goes on and puts it this way. If the world does not observe those things among true Christians, the world has a right to make two awful judgments, which these verses indicate. One, we are not Christian. And two, Christ was not sent by the Father. In other words, very simply, we damage the gospel. <coughs> so very quickly, what's going on here? The trouble with Ephesus, this is what we want to avoid. We want to avoid service without sacrifice. We want to avoid just being busy for busyness sake. Have you ever thought about the fact that Christianity really is inherently uncomfortable? It is. You have the Bible saying things like deny yourself. How many of us want to do that? The Bible says take up a cross. In other words, that'd be like saying carry your own electric chair. Your own place of execution. Bear it every day. The Bible says we will suffer persecution if we live godly. The Bible says we are to be 
crucified with any of those things comfortable? C.S. Lewis was kind of comical in the way he put it. He said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. And he kind of tongue-in-cheek said, I always knew a bottle of port would do that. Now, he's not recommending that, I'm sure. He says, if you want religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. If you're looking for your service just to be comfortable, you signed up in the wrong group. So avoid service without being willing to sacrifice. Next, never work without worship. Go back to Revelation 2. Look at verse number 2. I know your works and your labor. The word labor there means to work to the point of weariness. And some of us are there. That's where we are. We are weary. We're, the, the, the term we, we're burned out. That's where we are. And we've done it for the church. And I'm sorry. If you've done it just for the church, you've done it for the wrong reason. Even though you may have been told, do it for the church. Do it for Jesus. Be committed to what Jesus is committed to. His own glory. glory of his father. Worship never leads to burnout. It builds up. Never have discernment without devotion. In other words, yes, we want to be. We want to be biblical we want to approve things that are excellent. That's the idea of discernment. But it's not to make ourselves look good. It's not so that we can compare our so-called spirituality to somebody else's. Look down on them if they not, they're not where we are. No, we want to be devoted to Christ, not our own set of rules and regulations. So avoid discernment without devotion. Avoid labor without love. And then avoid commitment without Christ. And there I mean commitment even to ministry. And I know having being in the ministry, it's very, it's very easy. The line is very shaded between commitment to your ministry for ministry's sake and commitment to Christ for ministry's sake. Sometimes those lines get blurry. 
But everything we do in ministry for ministry always comes back to Christ. Because if your ministry, if your ministry is based on people, people will disappoint you and fail you and hurt you, and you know that. So if we if we don't want those things, what do we do? Well, we ought, to, we ought to ask ourselves a couple of questions. How do you do with the do you love Jesus test? What's the do you love Jesus test? If you love me, keep my commandments. How do you do with that? You say, well, I'm okay. I'm okay on the big things. Let me just ask you this. How's your prayer life? We are commanded to pray. How's your prayer life? If you're like me, that's probably one of the most frustrating things about your walk with Christ. You, you know you should, but I mean, there's Facebook. There's kids. There's sports. There's Netflix. There's all, there's work. There's all these other things that the flesh wants. Do we love Jesus? So how do you do on the do you love Jesus test? Are you looking for comfortable Christianity? Are you looking kind of just to skate along? Just to just to be con content with the status of your life until you finally get to heaven? Maybe, maybe you've been burned out. And I'm being sincere. You've been burned out and now you're, you're determined that that's never going to happen again. Well, that's a good thing. Don't get burned out. But don't abandon Jesus either. Are you looking for comfortable Christianity? Are you burned out because... Your focus is in the wrong place. You were doing what you were doing for the pastor. You were doing what you were doing for the people. You were doing what you were doing for the church. You were doing what you were doing because of your position. It was all based on everything else other than you love Jesus. Let me close with what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus. Verse five, remember, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. You see, I have no doubt that maybe even some of us who are burned out when we started, we started for the right reasons. 
We, our motivation was Jesus. And somewhere along the way, it switched. We may or may not know when that happened, but it, the focus got, got off. We wanted to please someone. We wanted to make someone happy. Whatever the case was, I don't know. But we left Jesus behind. And the thing became our motivation, or a person became our motivation. Remember when it was Jesus, though? Maybe you do need to repent and rekindle the love that motivated service in the beginning. You say, preacher, I want to love Jesus more. How do I do it? Well, there's probably a lot of ways I can answer that. But let me just tell you what I do. And I'm not saying my way is the only way. But when I know I don't love Jesus like I should, I repent. I ask him to forgive. And then I go to the cross. Go to the cross. And you see love poured out and demonstrated you see love clearly displayed in God and in Jesus and in sacrifice and in blood and in tears and hear what he says. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. If you need to rekindle your love for Jesus, go to the cross and spend some time looking at Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me, please?